This year, we've been telling you all about World War I, taking you from the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand to the Marne, Gallipoli, Verdun, and the Somme, which were largely important battles that took place over a few months. This week, we're taking you to the Belgian coastline, where the fighting would rage on from 1914 all the way through the end of the war in 1918. During that time, soldiers would experience the worst that the Western Front had to offer, and naturally, it would have its own little wacky quirks that made it a soul-crushing nightmare that would haunt the men that fought there for the rest of their lives. It's time once more to down your drink, summon your courage, and go over the top in this episode of 100 Proof History, titled The Battles of Ypres, New and Exciting Ways to Die. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome in, boys and girls alike. We, uh, we welcome you into this fine establishment known as 100 Proof History. Please do not mind the, uh, Homeless burn barrels in the corners. The used syringes on the floor. No, 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 no. Focus on what we're talking about today, which are the three battles of Ypres. Yeah, three out of four battles, but we'll talk about that later. Well, okay. (laughs) Yeah, welcome in. I am your sexiest of co-hosts, Christopher. And as always, the man bringing you in, telling you the story and just kind of keeping everything running Glossing over all of the bad things that you see once you enter the rotten edifice of this house is uh, main host Gregory. Greg, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we have been doing World War One all year. I'm looking forward to getting back into it, getting back to this suffering and this horribleness. And you're like, why did any of this happen? And why am I so aroused when I hear about it? What is happening to me? Why is my brain broken? Why did I ever agree to any of this? And yet, here you are. Here we are. Is Hambone real? Am I real? Who knows? No, we'll never know. Until you're laying in bed and you just feel a little hand kiss you on the cheek. What the fuck was that? (laughs) It's me, baby. Go back to bed. Go back to bed. I like watching when you sleep. (laughs) Oh, it's just you, Hambone. You are real. You are well, real. I knew it. Okay, kiss me on the mouth. I Good knew night, it. Hambone. <laughs> we'll catch up in the morning. And I hope more. I hope. Yep. But uh, yeah, we're going to do this story. We're going to do it right. But first, Greg, we have to tell the people the book we read, which was A Storm in Flanders by Winston Groom, the uh, Forrest Gump guy. He is the Forrest Gump guy. <laughs> Wrote Forrest Gump. Well... And so you see that when you're looking for a source, you're like, oh, that's going to, like, what kind of wacky shit's going to happen in this story? You're like, I'm so excited. And you're like, where's the fun? Where's the, where's the death? It's just nothing but people dying. This is nothing but... <laughs> it's just Forrest telling Bubba goodbye, but, like, for an entire fucking book. Like, no, God. And a thousand the- different forests. <laughs> yeah. 800,000 different Bubbas. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, it turns out Winston Groom is a serious historian, and uh, Forrest Gump was kind of like his foray into fiction, and little known fact about that book 
He was so displeased with how the movie portrayed Forrest that his sequel is just wheels off. Like, he wrote a sequel to Forrest Gump, and it's just fucking crazy. Like, goes into space and causes, like, a nuclear war and shit. And it's just oh, it's weird. that wild? Yeah, he just gets crazy. I've heard it was wild, but never got any details. Yeah. But this book, uh, I enjoyed it. It was very well written. It told the whole story. Usually in these World War One episodes, I have to read, like, three or four books, watch a bunch of documentaries, try and put it all together. Uh, but he did a very good job telling the whole story. Oh, I agree. I agree. Very thorough and in-depth. And uh, fellow human beings, a uh, final reminder, we are going on break. We'll, uh, we're taking a little time off. Be with the family. Mm-hmm. Be with the secret family. Get our boyfriends away from their families. I don't know. I, I, it's hard to keep up with the tales I leave. <laughs> the lies I tell you. But regardless, we will be back on September 2nd. Yep, taking the next month off. I can't wait. Me and my wife are going to spend some quality time together, sitting on the large sectional couch on opposite ends, looking at our phones, laughing at things on our phones, but not explaining to the other one what we're laughing about. You know, I'm looking at funny memes on the internet, and she's just looking at uh, divorce lawyers. Tinder. Things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, this guy's profile's hilarious. Look, at him. He's such, oh, what a good pickup line. Uh, but no, yeah, so we'll be back in September, like Greg said. Uh, in the meantime, guys, check out the Patreon. If you get lonely, you miss us, you can go check out the Patreon and find all sorts of old episodes and get caught up. There's a few World War One stories that are on there specifically that you can find and listen to, mm-hmm. kind of fill in this story a little bit more. As well as, I don't know, what, like 60 Hangover episodes, mini episodes, whatever. Yeah, yeah do it. Well, I guess we've uh, kind of got through the business part of this show. Now it's time to get to the party in the back. Greg, are you ready for me to tell my part of this story to everyone while you sit there and get drunk and judge me silently like my dad does every Thanksgiving? Let's get on that pleasure train, baby. Yeah. Well, so far, we've been telling you about the war in chronological order and have made it up to the end of 1916 with both Verdun and the Somme ending in finger quotes, allied victories, which were really just massive death fests in which very little was actually gained. But to begin this story, the story of Ypres, we're going to go all the way back to the fall of 1914, uh, pretty much immediately after the Battle of the Marne in France. Well, the reason for this is because, as we said in the intro, the area we're about to talk about saw consistent fighting for four years, with most of the horrifying action coming in 1917. All this is to say that if you've been following along all year, you might recognize some of the names and the dumb tactics they used, But it's important to remember, they hadn't actually figured out how dumb those tactics were. And so, some of these mistakes, you're like, oh, this fucking idiot doing this shit again. No, it's doing it before. We're going back to the future kind of deal. You know? I'm going to go back and try not to have sex with my hot teenage mom so I can be born. so hard, though. You can still jerk (laughs) off to it, though. Yeah, you know he did. I mean, he's a teenager. the, The idea was planted... In his head. She was hot, you know. Yeah, she was. And she came on to him. It would be wrong to fuck her. It would be wrong to fuck her. But is it wrong to think about it? Maybe just over the clothes at the hop dance thingy. Yeah. I don't know what they called shit in the 50s. Something (laughs) stupid like that. Dad's a fucking pervert who's just spying on her in the trees and shit. Like... (laughs) Maybe finger your mom, dad's fucking cucking it up in the trees. (laughs) (laughs) Jerking. Man, Back to Future could have got really dark really fast. (laughs) 
He fights his dad. No, she's mine, you fucking bitch. <laughs> like, he's throwing a punch and his fist is fading away because he's the one that's been fucking his mom and his dad's not there anymore. God. <laughs> I smell a reboot. 30 seconds into this fucking podcast and here we are. <laughs> in our own mess. <laughs> I told myself I was going to be better this week. I was going to ignore the burn barrels in the corner. I was just going to tell a story about history, but nope. I'm over there talking to the hobos like, what are you guys into? What do you guys like to do? <laughs> this needle doesn't look like it's been used a bunch. You're on a couple times, still sharp. I'm going on break for like a month. You uh, you got any plans in August? Do you want to you know, maybe see the world with me? <laughs> so yeah, guys, remember, we're going back to 1914, so some of these tactics might sound repetitive and stupid to you. And also, if we repeat some things we've said in our other episodes, uh, it's because they bear repeating. It's very important to remember. Or we don't remember saying it because we have early onset dementia caused by heavy drinking. Well said. And if we repeat ourselves too much, it's because we have early onset dementia because of heavy drinking. Oh, that that's also a good point. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, the area we'll be focusing on is known as Flanders. Everyone there says diddly after everything. Get it, guys? Like the Simpsons, Flanders, you know? He's got a mustache, he believes in Jesus and stuff. But you know he has a sex swing, too. <laughs> Those types always have a sex swing. Seems like it. It's always my experience. The youth pastors of my day were like, hey, why don't you come over here and have some wine coolers? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Isn't it a to drink? You just need to chill out, baby. What do you think of my sports bag full of dildos? <laughs> it's a pretty cool sports bag. Oh, Adidas, nice, nice. Yes. No, no, look inside. I don't wanna. I don't wanna get in my trunk. <laughs> Mom, <laughs> Corey's doing it again. <laughs> oh, you know I'm just joking with him. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah, I know you're all about the body of Christ, but you wanna feel these abs real quick? I'm doing crunches. <laughs> I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> uh, what? Exactly. Uh, I don't know. I was just, you know, you miss 100% of those shots you don't try. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, Flanders stretches down the Belgian coastline along the northern sea and into the northern part of France. And it's about the size of the greater Los Angeles area. And I know you guys all know how big that is. You measure things in those units, but in case. You aren't aware that is 0.125 Texases. You're welcome. Just make it easier for that conversion. The name Flanders is Flemish for flooded land, because as a Belgian author once wrote, quote, Water is everywhere, in the air, on the ground, under the ground. It is the land of dampness, the kingdom of water. It rains three days out of four, and as soon as the rain ceases to fall, thick white mists rise from the ground, giving a ghost-like appearance to men and things alike. End quote. Seems pretty wet. Yeah, Greg, it's so wet there that Ben Shapiro's doctor wife is concerned for its medical well-being. <laughs> I got him. Nailed it. Let's say, hypothetically, you could arouse a woman. And, in theory... That arousal would produce some sort of moisture down in the vagina. What, what, what level does it become too much moisture? And you start worrying about socialism in your wife's vagina. That's my Ben Shapiro impersonation. Mm -hmm. I, think I, mm -hmm. I think I got it. I think I got it. 
Uh, women have one vagina, men have one penis, two testicles. I'm supporting my argument with facts and statistics. You are supporting yours with feelings. Facts over feelings. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dude, I'm just trying to order some burritos. <laughs> like, wait your turn. What the fuck? No, 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 no. That's mine. I don't know. That's better than mine, I think. I think you nailed it. <laughs> the central town on the Belgian side of Flanders is Ypres, which by 1914 had been a thriving city for about 700 years. Surrounding it was an eight-mile arc of ridges that rose up like stair steps to an elevation of 160 feet above the city. And dotting those ridges and the valley around Ypres were several smaller villages, most of which wouldn't survive the four years of fighting in and around them. Following the German defeat at the Marne in September of 1914, the two sides began the fabled Race to the Sea, where the Germans and the Entente forces attempted to outflank each other to the north, but wound up just building massive lines of trenches from Switzerland up to Flanders. On the far north flank of the Entente forces on the Western Front were the British. The Brits arrived at Ypres on October 11th. Now, I know we've told you over and over again how pathetically small the British Army was at this point in history. And I know Greg's going to tell me pathetically average. It's it's pathetically average, (laughs) but... Uh, operative word is average. Okay. <laughs> right. It's like when I found out the average shoe size for men is seven, like worldwide. I'm like, that seems small. But uh, who am I to judge, I guess? You know, just uh, average penis size is tiny. So someday with enough pumping and creams, I'll get to average. My wife won't leave me. My foot size. My penis size will never be average. There's there's just no fucking way that's ever going to happen. <laughs> it's also important to know that in 1914, the British didn't have grenades or mortars. They had very few shovels, had to steal barbed wire from local farms, and their cavalry had been given the ultimate in half-ass training. They just gave them a fucking bayonet and said, you go stab some with this. That was like on the horse? Like, yeah, on the horse, stupid. Your cavalry. But I've never ridden a horse. Well, you, you'll fucking figure it out. Just get up there. Get up there. It's the same thing. You're just, you know, you're riding something. Yeah, just slaps the horse's ass and he takes off riding all fucking crazy. And that cowboy's <laughs> just <laughs> dying <laughs> laughing. <laughs> fucking city slickers. Ting. <laughs> <laughs> to boost their strength, they joined forces with the French and Belgians and marched into Ypres with about 280,000 soldiers. Which is respectable. Enough people, right? And when they arrived, Ypres was only occupied by about uh, 8,000 Germans, who stole everything they could and ran for the hills. British military commander, General Sir John French, believed he was going to have an easy victory, turn the flank on the Germans, and the war would be over by Christmas. GG, easy peasy, hang the banner. On October 20th, the British charged up the ridges to the east of Ypres, and soon realized that Sir John French was a goddamn moron. As they looked ahead, they saw thousands of civilians fleeing away from the large gray mass that was the 500,000-man-strong German force. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, first guy got up to the top of the ridge, looks over and sees all the Germans, like, there's the collar thing. (laughs) (laughs) It was only 8,000. Yeah, and then all of a sudden there's 500,000 of them. What's happened? That's a lot more thousands. Yeah. 
I didn't sign up for that many more thousands. <laughs> gonna be home by Christmas. Gonna see my wife and child. Oh, fuck. Wife and presumably my child, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No evidence otherwise. <laughs> it's, it's 1914. Can't go on, Maury. Son of a bitch. <laughs> She has very strong chin, and uh, the men or women in my family have extremely weak jawlines. Extremely weak. <laughs> I've been deployed for like two years, and that baby's three months old, but uh, she says it's mine, so. <laughs> Happy birthday, baby. <laughs> His baby, like, literally strolls up. I just enlisted in the army. You're fucking 15 years old. How are you my kid? I'm only 19. Well, that's what my whore mother says. Oh, son of a bitch. Well, by the grace of God, welcome aboard, son. <laughs> I love you so much. I'm sorry I've been away for so long. I feel like a bad father. I feel like I should have been there for you. Never taught me to play catch back in 1899 when I was going through puberty. Like, what is happening to my life? My son's older than me. <laughs> I'm such a bad father. So neglectful. <laughs> Turns out that the German commander, Erich von Falkenhayn, had also decided to launch a major offensive in Ypres at the same exact time. To make things worse, German artillery outnumbered the Brits at a ratio of 5 to 1. Also, the Germans had captured a British captain who had the entire battle plan in his fucking pocket. This allowed the superior German artillery to focus on the British advance and stalled their entire offensive. But it was 1914, like, the entire battle plan was just stick figures on a napkin. And arrows and shit like that. Just, okay, just go over here, this grease spot, where I accidentally dropped my hamburger. That's, uh, that's the Germans, because they're so greasy. You know, have a bunch of fake plans out there. That would make sense, yeah. Chris and Greg won the war. <laughs> well, There's no way they thought of that. Well, from what we know about the British during this time period, like half of the army would be like, oh no, this is the real plan. This is what gave me because I'm super important. I'm, <laughs> I know what's supposed to happen. And they just end up fighting each other, you know, like half of them sit down and play soccer or cards or some shit. And it just goes, well, I mean, it can't go much worse than it does, but it probably goes worse. Oh, hold my beer. <laughs> now, the British army was tiny, but the men that were fighting, known as the Old Contemptibles, were experienced and were well-trained. Luckily for them, the Germans that they were fighting in Ypres were mostly students who had received a six-week crash course in war. On the morning of the 20th, they came marching arm-in-arm, singing German songs, and were mowed down in what Germany would later dub the Massacre of the Innocents. All those innocents with their rifles <laughs> well, they weren't trying them. and failing to to kill. They were standing out in fucking no man's land playing fucking Red Rover with the Brits, like <laughs> swinging their arms. <laughs> Can Tommy come over? And just immediately artillery shell takes oh, off God, a guy's oh, head. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, and on that point, little known fact, the British were so well trained in the use of their weapons that the Germans would believe that they were actually the ones that were outnumbered and the Brits had superior weaponry. Yeah, and it was this German inexperience and the bravery of the Brits 
that perhaps kept this from being the deciding battle of the war. The Germans would take each ridge over Ypres and would get dangerously close to punching through the British line and flanking them, but each time they were turned back. And actually, in one force known as Polygon Wood, the Germans had complete control and could have pushed in behind British lines, but they really had no idea what to do, and so they just sat there until a counterattack drove them away from the forest. They're just standing around looking at all those polygons like, man, these graphics are amazing. Look at this shit. Some Nintendo 64 shit. Hell yeah. It's a me, a Mario. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and you look back now, it's like, oh, that looks like shit. But back then, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is, they'll never get better than this. You have to remember these people, they saw in black and white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So any kind of incremental increase in graphics, that was a huge deal to them. It really was. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that humans have evolved enough that you know, we can actually see color. <laughs> no, you are right. It is amazing that we have evolved to see the color, but it is also sad because we lost that ability to move like at super speeds, like unnatural speeds. They're like, why is that guy moving so fast? Like they did back in those days, you know, from what I've seen in the films. Oh, a little speedy frame rate. Yep. Issue. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, frame rate jokes. Mm. Yes. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't all have to be dicks, Greg. It could be frame rates and polygons, and we can, you know, nail it down from that angle. That silence there for just a half a second, I was trying to find a way to make a joke about my penis being polygons and stuff, but I couldn't come up with anything. So here we go. Yep, things were pretty grim for the British. They had to rush Belgian, French, and Indian reinforcements to the line. They were so low on artillery shells that each gun was given a strict limit of nine shells per day. And poor bastard that used the tenth shell just immediately marched up to the firing squad. They were like, what'd you do? Well, you know, I betrayed my country, sold secrets to the Germans. Okay, What'd you do? I use 10 artillery shells in a day. No blindfold of this motherfucker. No cigarettes, nothing. No less words. You know what? All bullets. I know usually, like, some of us don't actually have bullets. We have blanks, so we don't know who killed him. All bullets right in his fucking brain. This piece of shit. Pull down his pants. We're gonna see his penis. <laughs> Humiliate him. Well, I'm actually proud of my penis, sir. Pull it down all the same. I want to see it. Shoot him in his giant dick, boys! <laughs> Chop down that wood. See how you feel now, proud boy. Sir John French became so despondent that he said he should go die on the front lines and surrender to the fight. Just being so dramatic. What a dramatic little bitch. Oh, I'd better die. It's going so bad. Okay. French General Ferdinand Folk told him to stop being a little bitch, not to concede anything without a fight. It was around this time the King of Belgium ordered the floodgates at the mouth of the Iser River opened, flooding the northern part of the battlefield. Now this was actually a genius tactic, and it slowed the German advance and gave the Allies a new coastline where they could take refuge. Yeah, but it also destroyed a ton of, like, valuable farmland for years and years to come. Because <laughs> the sea is, of course, salt water. Yeah, but... They were getting government subsidies anyways, not to grow their soybeans and shit. And they're like, why is China sending us all these soybeans? Why are they making all the money all of a sudden? And then, you know, they had to bail them out, but then they still kept voting for the guys that flooded their land or something. I don't know. 
Uh, that's never happened before or since in history. Yeah, okay. But politics aside, it wasn't maybe the best move. You gotta do what you gotta do, Greg. Fuck them farmers. I don't know if they had to do it, is my point. That's the also the slogan of FarmersOnly.com. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck them farmers. Hell yeah. <laughs> the fighting devolved into hand-to-hand chaos in which men were stabbed, clubbed, and strangled to death. For the most part, the Germans were only testing the lines for weaknesses, like the raptors testing the fence in Jurassic Park. Hell yeah. 28-year-old movie. Nailed yeah. it. Nailed <laughs> the joke, though. Von Falkenhayn insisted on constantly attacking the British to keep them from getting comfortable while he prepared for his big offensive on November 11th. Just kind of a shit move, attacking on Veterans Day. Fucking asshole. Uh, come on, man. It's Armistice Day. <laughs> the armistice that wouldn't uh, occur for years after this. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. But still, asshole move. Yeah, dick. Unfortunately for him, he didn't realize that constantly forcing his own men to attack would also make them war-weary. On the rainy and foggy morning of the 11th, several of his battalions simply refused to leave their positions, and others retreated as soon as they met the slightest resistance. His offensive was repelled, and both sides settled in for the winter. The first battle of Ypres was over, with the British suffering 60,000 casualties, and the German losing 165,000 men of their own. But Greg, the Germans, had the high ground. Obi-Wan just came in his pants. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. The two sides began to work on their trench system. The British soon found the low area that they were on sucked for digging, and a lot of their trenches were basically ground-level paths surrounded by five-feet-high sandbag walls that did very little to protect them from shrapnel and bullets. The problem was, the nearby sea caused the water table to be just two or three feet below the surface. So, you guys don't know what that means. Basically, you dig two feet and you're in mud water. Just, there's nothing to dig. It also rained constantly, flooding the trenches of both sides, introducing the troops to the ailment known as trench foot, in which feet that are constantly wet literally begin to rot. This and later on, we're going to talk about mud, and you guys will understand a little bit more later. But we're going to this kind uh, of- tell you guys what mud is <laughs> a little later. But until then, go ahead. Chris. Until then, there is nothing worse than you got the wet socks inside your shoes, and you know you got to deal with it for a while. It's just such a bad feeling. Like I have literally called in sick to work with fucking wet socks. I'm like I, I'm not going to make it. My boss is like, "Oh no, no, no! I understand. That that's fucking terrible." Wet socks, man, I can't fucking handle them. Just cannot handle it. And so imagine being just soaked for months straight. And then, like I said, the mud. Think of the last time, as an adult human, you stepped in mud and how inconvenient that was. Like, you had to just dig it out with a stick and shit. It just ruined your fucking day. And then these guys, again, are just going to suffer and live in mud for months. And what's the deal with airline food? Right? Right? Thank you. That Christmas day, most of the troops on both sides climbed out of their trenches and met in no man's land where they exchanged gifts, sang Christmas songs, and played a few games of football. Or, I'm sorry, soccer. I forget. Please, they're, Chris, please. They're idiots. Uh, they, they call their things stupid things. <laughs> it would become known as the Christmas Truce. It would become something of a historical legend, but when higher-ups on each side got word of what was happening... 
they instantly shut it down and made rules against fraternization. And we actually have a hangover episode about this on our Patreon. We do one Christmas truce? Don't we? Didn't we? we? I think we did. Didn't we? Didn't we? I don't remember. I think we did. I don't know. I've got all of them right here. Why don't I just look? Okay. 12-21-2020. Wow, we did it for Christmas. Like an idiot. Yep. Give us $3. You can hear that one, too. Even though we kind of just told you what it was all about. But there, there's more detail. There's there's more to it. There's just We've got an entire short episode on it, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. More uh, dicks and farts? Maybe a ham bone? I don't remember. It's a long time ago. Incredibly drunk. In early 1915, the British began preparations to take a 60-foot mound on a ridge overlooking Ypres that was known as Hill 60. Well, they decided to dig a tunnel under the hill, pack it with gunpowder, and blow it to hell. On April 7th, the hill was wiped from the face of the earth and hundreds of Germans were instantly vaporized or buried alive. The Brits rushed to take the hill and soon found themselves pounded in the ass. I don't know why I hit that so hard. <laughs> like, <Whoa>. yeah! <laughs> yes! <laughs> I read the words and I got excited. Okay, here we go. The Brits rushed to take the hill and soon found themselves pounded in the ass by the artillery that surrounded them. Like, somehow, the Germans knew where they were now. Uh, what do we target? Oh, maybe that giant <laughs> fucking hill crawling with British people. The Second Battle of Ypres had begun. And little-known fact, this digging was done by guys known as clay kickers. The ground was too wet and full of clay to dig normally, so these guys would lay on their backs wearing spiked shoes and literally kick their feet to dig a tunnel. In doing so, they had to deal with a dire lack of oxygen and the occasional German attempting to bury them alive by collapsing that tunnel. And back to what you said as far as, you know, they were able to finally take Hill 60 and the whole Ypres thing... The reason why it's a big deal is because it was a salient, and we discussed what that was during the Verdun episode, which is basically like you have this fluid front line, mm -hmm. and once somebody kind of is either able to defend against that front line versus the rest of it, or they're able to take something versus the fluidity of the rest of it, that's kind of what a salient is. It's something that's basically surrounded on three sides. Yeah, it's like a bump sticking out from the front line. Right, and so that's what makes it so dangerous, which is the big deal with most of the battles of Ypres. Like, that, that's why they're a thing. Yeah. That's why they were so deadly. And so, with them taking Hill 60, I just felt like this is a good time to kind of mention what that means, specifically, and how that made it worse. Yeah, because those clay kickers had to go past their front line, further out into that salient. And they kind of created a mini salient when they took Hill 60, because now they have another small bump on the front line that's just surrounded and getting pounded by artillery mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, it makes sense. One of my favorite things in the book, though, when they, they were talking about the clay kickers, was the guy trying to sell it to the military, and he just lays on the ground on his back and just starts kicking his legs. Starts like trying kicking, to yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying to, <laughs> this is how it worked, fellas. And they're like, what the fuck is this idiot doing, you know? <laughs> it's, it reminded me, uh, there's an old movie, uh, old Coen Brothers movie called The Hudsucker Proxy with Tim Robbins. And basically, he's a mailroom clerk in a big corporation. He's trying to, he invents the hula hoop. And the way he sells it is he draws a circle on a piece of paper. And he just shows the piece of paper with a circle on it to people. Who's, you know, for kids. 
I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's how I got, <laughs> that's the impression I got of the clay kickers. This guy just, oh, oh I will demonstrate for you, fellas. This'll, this'll bring it home. This'll sell it for sure. That is a good comparison. Thank you. Well, anyway, on April 22nd, at about 5 p.m., the Germans unleashed a new fun times killing method by releasing a giant cloud of chlorine gas into the wind. It drifted across no man's land and settled into the trenches occupied by Algerian troops. The gas decimated them and forced them to run. The Germans then strolled casually into the trenches and then just decided to hang out there for the rest of the day. And we talked about that in the Verdun episode as well, just like these guys... Like, what the fuck do we do now? We, we took their trenches. Uh, mm-hmm. What now? Mm-hmm. The Germans, I feel, in both World War One and World War II were very bad at improvising. Like, I feel like they don't have that American, British, other, you know, Canadian spirit of, fuck it, we're going to do what we want. The orders told us to go here, but we got here and there ain't shit to do, so let's just keep going. I feel like a lot of times the Germans accomplished their objective and they're like, okay, fucking did it. They're very, very regimented. Yeah. Well, that's when the badass Canadians politely came to the rescue. The German commanders considered Canadians to be, quote, trash, feeble adversaries, but they rushed in there and took back the trenches by fighting like madmen. Well, still, the battalion that took the trench lost 728 of their 816 men in the process. During the battle, however, other colonial troops wouldn't do so great. The Indian Brigade was mowed down when someone lied to them and told them that No Man's Land was only 200 yards and was actually closer to 2,000. Which meant they stood up and started trying to advance and uh, got fucking immediately shot down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a big fucking difference there. They're they're thinking they're going over to another trench. Just right up the way and uh, no, no, it's, it's way down the street. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they instantly got just slaughtered, and uh, poor bastards. But uh, on the other side, when the French ordered troops from Senegal to attack, they just flat out refused, shot their own officers, and then went to the rear areas where they looted the supplies and raped the nurses before being shot down by British cavalry. Mm. Pretty shitty. What did you do in the war, Grandpa? <laughs> More like, who did I do, right? <laughs> Your grandpa's a piece of shit. I have nightmares about the horrible things I did when I was a child. Ooh. The Germans used more and more gas and more and more artillery, and soon both sides began to experience what became known as shell shock, which was basically a severe case of PTSD. Men would lose the ability to walk, and they would fall to the ground or would shuffle around blank and mindless like a zombie. They went deaf, blind, and dumb, and would spend months or years in the hospital. In the past, battles, even wars, had lasted just days. The human brain isn't equipped to deal with months of death and destruction. Now, as I said earlier, the British trenches weren't that great at this time, so they went to work improving them by digging in the areas where they could. Unfortunately, a lot of these areas were where they had buried their dead in the first Battle of Ypres. They did what they could to avoid it, but for the most part, they just dug straight through the decaying corpses of their fallen comrades, which I'm sure did just absolute wonders for their PTSD. There wasn't much movement in the Second Battle of Ypres. By the end of it, the Germans controlled the high ground and a few of the low ridges overlooking Ypres itself. In this battle, over an area of about three miles, the two sides had combined for about 100,000 casualties, 
That meant that in less than a full year, 300,000 men had been wounded or killed in Ypres, and the worst was still to come. And that feels like a good place to take a break, and Greg can tell you about more horrible, terrible, awful ways to die. And then maybe he'll also talk about World War I a little bit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can't fucking wait! Woo! Let's do it! All right, we are back from break. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you had a drink or two. You contemplated life. You're like, this is the best it's going to get. This is it for me. My only uh, hope is that in the second half of this show, I hit some sort of new peak. And it, it, it could happen for you. That's the same exact thoughts I had. You're not alone. And I think that's the important thing. Just letting people know they're not alone in their desperation. We, we're all suffering. Misery loves company, and that's... My actual game plan is to point out people's suffering. <laughs> you know? Not only let them know they're not alone, but to mm-hmm. point out, like, hey, you are suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. look at you. <laughs> you rube. Ugh. Who would watch you? Mm-hmm. And then that's how I... Uh, well, I don't want to use the word manipulate. <laughs> That's how, you know, I show these people the truth. And then they go on dates with me. Yeah. You you said game plan, but really you meant kink. But sometimes it backfires and you tell somebody they're a piece of shit and they'll never do any better. And you end up stuck hosting a podcast with them. So, sucks to be you sometimes. It does happen. <laughs> anyway, we're about to tell the second half of this story. But before we do, we have to pop open our second half seltzers. Second half salsa. Second half salsa. Second half salsa. Three, two, one. Pop your tops, ladies. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Cool, man. Yeah, I am a cool man. Validation. See, that's what I do. I break them down and I start building them back. <laughs> Well, Gregory, are you ready to tell these humans the rest of this story? I got nothing better to do. Might as well. That's what my wife said when I proposed. <laughs> Idiot. Can't believe she fell for that shit. She didn't see all those missed calls from Chad on her phone at the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. He hasn't called her tech. Yeah, fine. Whatever. Let's do this thing. Well, getting back to the story. In the summer of 1915, the Brits decided they wanted to blow up a chateau that was being held by the Germans and, once again, they wanted to do so by planting a bomb in a tunnel underneath it. For this, they hired a lieutenant named Jeffrey Castles, who had been a minor in his civilian life. Now, he was an adult, Mm -hmm. so minor, M-I-N-E-R. Yeah, yeah, no, he was definitely over 18. (laughs) At least that's what he told me. Yeah, he's wrinkly. Yuck. (laughs) They gave him a month to tunnel, and he soon found he was way off course. So instead of delaying the explosion, he just decided to make it fucking huge. Typical contractor. Just fucking do what you can while you can, man. To do this, he would use 3,500 pounds of an explosive known as aminol. 
Problem was, the British quartermasters had no fucking clue what that was. They figured it was a medicine and called around until they found an American company that produced Imonol, which was a substance designed to make your dick numb and prevent premature ejaculation. None of that shit works, trust me. (laughs) None of it. They were incredibly confused as to why a bunch of miners needed that. And again, that's M-I-N-E-R-S. Yeah, I was going to say, when I was a miner, it was even worse. (laughs) Look at me, I was nothing. Just sitting in geometry class, looking at my female teacher who had the buzz cut and the the real thick glasses and sort of a a, a thin mustache. I'm like, oh my God, she's so attractive to me for some reason. What's happening? (laughs) She's also coach of the football team. (laughs) But she always talked to the lady softball players the most for some reason. I don't know what what she was doing. She wasn't paying attention to me. She was always over there rubbing their shoulders, asking if they need help with the quadratic equation. I'm like, I need help. I <laughs> insert Mr. Mulhaney. I don't mean insert. In, like That's when Mr. Mulhaney came into my life and uh, things changed. <laughs> uh, you know what? Story for another day. Story oh, no. Day. Who cares about World War I? Let's get into that. <laughs> that man knew my body. <laughs> of work. At school, your body of school work. No, I was, I was 18. 18 in Australia that night, but we weren't in Australia. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but still, you went down under, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's a good thing we're taking a break. <laughs> Well, Mulhaney, too. It was this kid's birthday party that evening, so he had to go. <laughs> Once I was officially, officially 18, he wouldn't have anything to do with me. Oh. I think the passion was gone for him. <laughs> That's not even mentioning my torrid love affair with Mr. Jim Teacher. <laughs> you remember him? Yeah, the guy who wasn't actually a teacher. Yeah, he just lived like across the street from the school, <laughs> yeah. even though I don't think he was supposed to. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> oh, God. What have we become? Some patrons listening to episode one is like, how did they get here? Like, how did that happen? So bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, just talking about history. Like, hey. <laughs> And they let their... Sexual proclivity surface, and it's been downhill since. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong. Well, eventually the quartermasters figured out what they actually needed, and the mine was detonated on July 19th, 1915, sending the chateau and the entire German force around it hundreds of feet into the air. Whee! They're just having a blast, just having a good time. Something like that, something like that. One Englishman was killed when he decided to stick his head out of the trench and watch the explosion. For this, the division commander began to strip castles of his rank, and he was told he was under arrest. Just then, a runner entered the room and informed that commander that Sir John French was giving castles the military cross for the explosion instead. Uh, you know, sometimes it works out that way. You think we can get fired? Like, this guy keeps exposing himself to people. But, uh, suddenly, middle management comes in, but you see the spreadsheets he was putting together. We can't afford to lose right now, so. 
Just just tell him uh, he has to hang dong on his own time. But we're giving him a promotion. Ten days later, the Germans came up with yet another way of killing. In the early morning hours of July 29th, as the Brits moved to their position in the crater created by castles, they were met with a half-dozen Germans carrying flamethrowers. They roasted 400 men alive before the British could escape the crater. Is that a metal moment? I think it might be a metal moment. <laughs> flamethrowers, just heavy metal guitars, are <laughs> roasting those stupid limey fucks. Haha, <laughs> 400 <laughs> dead people. <laughs> metal <laughs> moment! Yes, yeah! The fall and winter at Ypres would be somewhat quiet, with no major offensives being launched, but by December, the Germans had figured out how to put gas into shells and began torturing the British soldiers with phosgene gas. Back in England, the people were pissed at how the war was going, so they made Lloyd George their prime minister. Do you really want to hurt me? Lloyd George. Oh. I'm, not Boy George. I'm just less interested in the story now. Okay, continue. Whatever. <laughs> He instantly declared that anyone between 15 and 65 that couldn't fight was to be put to work in the factories making ammunition. Around the same time, Sir John French was losing the Battle of Luce, so he was fired and replaced by Sir Douglas Haig. Should have fought in the Battle of Winds. Not the Battle of Luce? Yeah. Nice. I'm so proud of that. Very nice. So proud. I'm just giving the moment, uh, you know, some time. I just want all the people listening in podcast land to stop clapping on their drives home. Yes, before thank you. I continue. That's good. Story, that's so. that's what a good stand up does. When the the joke lands, you got to wait for him to stop laughing before mm -hmm. you can continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I figure we got about three more seconds. <laughs> These two, Haig and Lloyd, didn't get along, and by that, I mean they each thought the other was a complete and total moron. Hundred proof history. Later in the war, this would have dire effects on the British soldiers. But in 1916, for the most part, things would be quiet in Ypres. Sure, the Brits and Germans both lost hundreds of casualties a day to bullets, shells, gas, and men just losing their fucking minds. But there weren't any big offensives around Flanders because both sides were busy killing the shit out of each other in Verdun and at the Somme. And, Gregory, little known fact, in 1916, the famous poppies bloomed and covered the no-man's land between the Germans and the British. In fact, despite the constant death and destruction, Belgian farmers just a few miles away from front lines lived relatively normal lives and were able to tender their crops as Belgians had done for centuries. At the end of 1916, Lloyd George proposed that control of the British army be given to the French for an upcoming offensive masterminded by French General Robert Neville. Haig threw a little hissy fit and threatened to quit. He wanted the big offensive push to be made at Ypres, and he sure as shit didn't want to be told what to do by no cheese-eating, chain-smoking Frenchman. Since he was BFFs with the king, Haig got his way. Hmm. Sort of. He'd still be a part of Neville's offensive, but as soon as that battle was over, he'd regain control of his army, and if it all went to shit, he reserved the right to bail. Which I'm sure he'd be fine. Definitely won't go to shit. And it all went to shit. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Who would have seen that coming? The exact opposite thing I just said. Continue. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Neville offensive was a goddamn disaster. 
Not only had the Germans found the entire battle plan abandoned in a trench, Neville himself wouldn't shut the fuck up and told anyone and everyone about it when he went to parties. In the battle, which began in April of 1917, the French would lose 200,000 men and gain about two miles of frontline territory. As a result, Neville was fired and replaced by Philippe Pétain, who had to immediately try and stop his entire army from defecting and surrendering to the Germans. With the French army almost completely out of the fight, the Brits knew they'd be fighting alone on the Western Front. General Pétain suggested the British just fight small, wearing-down battles to keep the Germans occupied. America had just declared war on Germany for reasons we'll detail in a later episode, and Pétain was suggesting everyone just hold out until the Yanks arrived. Haig wasn't having any of that shit. He wanted a massive offensive in Ypres designed to take the entire Belgian coast. Having been fucked over by Neville, Lloyd had no choice but to back Haig's play. And it's important to know at this point, uh, obviously, we're past Verdun, which if you guys have listened to, Haig had grand plans in Verdun as well. Just ridiculously over-ambitious plans where he's like, and Verdun, he's like, oh yeah, we'll win here and we'll just march on into Berlin. We got this shit. Just one, one battle will do it. And he's doing the same thing here at Ypres, even though he's just been through the Somme and everything went terrible there. And the guys were like, we just got to take a little bit at a time here, Hey, Just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. But here in Ypres, he's like, hey, well, if we just win here, then we can take this part of the coast. This part of the coast will be at the Rhine and by, you know, November, everything will be great. Be great. We got it. Just uh, let's do this shit again. What's, what's the worst could happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first step for the British was to capture Messine Ridge, which overlooked a large portion of the battlefield. To lead this operation, he picked a 60-year-old lieutenant general named Sir Herbert Plumer, who was so beloved by his men that they called him Daddy. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, not a joke. No. No. No, it's not a joke, but <laughs> it should be. <laughs> Well, I mean, the Germans were intimidated when they saw these guys coming in leather masks with uh, balls in their mouth. (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? His runner reports to him. Oh, Sir Daddy reports as ordered. (laughs) (laughs) They look at the end of the line and there's a, a guy just being wheeled on an electric gurney across... He's got the mask and the ball gag on. He's like, I was wounded at the Somme, but I will not be stopped. But of course, in a computer voice, because it's our old buddy, Woofdick. Oh, Woofdick. Beginning in 1915, the British had been digging a 19-mile-long series of tunnels under Messine Ridge and had fought several small skirmishes in the tunnels against Germans in what became known as the Underground War. Still. By 1917, the work was complete, and at 3.10 a.m. on June 7th, 10,000 Germans were instantly vaporized when a million pounds of aminol was detonated. Okay, uh, toilet bowl after Taco Bell, am I right? (laughs) This segment brought to you by Subway, where you can get a tasty cold-cut combo and jack off in the bathroom while you have a loaded gun in your mouth fighting back tears. Oh, and don't forget to get it toasted. (laughs) Had to put it in the Subway uh, ad that they totally paid us to do. Yep. (laughs) Paid, cease and desist letter, 
What's the difference? <laughs> right? What really is the difference? How about you pay us to stop, Subway? <laughs> Try that shit. <laughs> they keep finding guys jerking off in the bathroom with guns in their mouth. Well, Hunter Proof History told me to. <laughs> God damn it. I hate when the local high school comes by on their lunch breaks now. It's all got to shit. Plumer then led his men to what had once been the ridge and took it. The attack was so effective that most of the casualties came when the advancing British found there wasn't enough room on the ridge for all the men who had made the charge, and the stragglers were picked off by German snipers and machine gun fire. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we like to think of casualties as a horrible thing, and they are, but these guys would have expected casualties. Like, hey, we're going to take this ridge, we expect 10,000 guys to be knocked out of the fight, dead or injured. And that's what they did here. They're like, hey, this is... uh." It's going to be pretty bloody. We're going to lose a lot of people. So it won't be a big deal when we get up there. And they get up there and they're just like standing room only. And like Then those guys started dying because it's like, oh shit, we don't have chairs for all you guys to hang out in. Just uh, just stand over here. Just sit over here at the edge of the the, the trench. Nothing, nothing bad will happen to you. It'll be fine. Stand over there at Sniper's Peak. Oh, they call it that? People <laughs> snipe from here? No, no. They snipe at there. <laughs> yeah. You walk? <laughs> Here, put this red circle over the center of your chest. Let's just, you know, let's make it sporting. Let's see if they can hit it. You what, mate? You fucking what? Still, the operation went so buttery smooth that it was by far the most successful British maneuver of basically the entire war up to this point. Well, during this attack, and this is a little known fact, Gregory, the British took 5,000 German soldiers prisoner. To control the prisoners and make sure they didn't try and fight back, the British cut the German suspenders so they had to use both hands to hold up their pants. Like, oh, I'm so embarrassed you're seeing my underwear right now or my lack thereof that I'm not going to fight you for my life. Like, whatever. Look at my tiny dick. Oh, you were so distracted by my tiny dick you noticed I was holding a Mauser rifle. Pow! I win the war. That's, <laughs> I'm just saying. Stupid Germans. <laughs> Well, their next step was to take Galuvelt Ridge. Douglas Haig asked Plumer how long it would take, using Plumer's tried-and-true technique of making small gains and then waiting on artillery to move up before attempting another advance. Plumer said three days. Haig, being the dumbass we all know him to be, said, Well, that's fucking stupid, and gave command to General Sir Hubert Goff. For some reason, though, when Goff said, I need like six weeks to prepare, make this shit happen. Haig was totally cool with it. So weird. Such a fuck. Three days, fuck you. That's too goddamn long. Uh, Six weeks. What about my buddy here? (laughs) I need six weeks. We're really going to do it. Ah, Sure you don't need seven? Are you cool? You're cool. I'll give you seven. (laughs) On July 31st, 1917, the Third Battle of Ypres, which would become known as Poshendale, began with a massive artillery barrage. Now, listener, you remember how we told you that the water table was only two feet below the surface? Well, this massive shelling, which was described as leaving shell holes touching one another across the entire 2,500-yard front, left a giant mud pit. And then it started raining. Mm. I love it when holes touch each other and form a mud pit. It's kind of my thing. And then it started raining. (laughs) 
After all that was already going on, you know? Yeah. Mm. Shirtless Patrick Swayze and Roadhouse. Ooh. As soon as we start watching that, me and my wife are like, oh, we're both thinking the same thing, aren't we? Yeah, let's go in separate rooms and masturbate. <laughs> yes! <laughs> right, because the water table is like so high mm-hmm. that he, the humidity is such that he's just glistening with his shirt mm. off. So good. And then it started raining. <laughs> yes! The British moved slowly across the mudfield with their newfangled tanks becoming mostly useless as anything other than target practice for German artillery. From the Gellivelt Ridge, the Germans poured artillery and machine gun fire into the advancing Brits, forcing them to take shelter in shell holes that quickly filled with rainwater. Also, just to add to the fun good times, Mm -hmm. the Germans had now developed mustard gas, which was way worse than the chlorine and phosgene gas they'd previously used. Mustard gas burned the body on the inside and outside and could linger on the ground and in the water for weeks at a time. Yay! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Mustard gas! <laughs> By August 10th, the entire British attack had stalled, and General Goff was politely fired and replaced by General Plumer. Plumer went back to his methodical approach and came up with a plan to launch an attack in September that would capture all of the ridges over Ypres by October. He had even come up with a method of devastating German counterattacks by using a reverse-creeping artillery barrage that would wipe them out from behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're going to oh. die. Oh, butt sex. Yeah, no, no, die. Yes, I don't know. What were we laughing? Oh, yes, die, 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 die. <laughs> But the delays caused by the failed Nivelle offensive, coupled with Haig waiting on Goff, were going to have disastrous effects. By October 4th, the Brits held every major ridge, except for Poshendale. Haig insisted that Plumer press on, but Plumer had a set strategy and couldn't rush things. And that is when it began to rain. For real. Wow. It was raining before, but now... Now it's real. Now it's real rain. It's just synthetic rain before. <laughs> it's just guys standing on the ridge pissing on them. Oh, God. <laughs> this is <fucking> stinky rain. <laughs> Over the following days, the battlefield became a putrid swamp of thick, sticky mud and the corpses of soldiers and horses. The shell holes all flooded and drowned wounded men. Duck boards had to be laid so that men could walk to the front lines and they instantly became the target of artillery. If a soldier fell off these duckboards, they would likely drown in putrid water or worse, suffer a very slow, maddening death by drowning in mud. Yeah, and our main source points out a story from one of the British soldiers. He said they're like advancing, and they get trapped in a shell hole in the middle of the night, and this guy keeps going and getting water to make them tea. Like He keeps coming back with cups full of tea for them. Oh, yeah, was disgusting one. Yeah, they wake up in the morning, like, where have you been getting the water from the team? He's like, that shell hole over there, and they look, and there's like a dead German that's floating in it. He's been there the whole time, and just been drinking putrid fucking water. But they're like, ah, we need sick, so whatever. And then later that same day, these same guys come across one of these poor British guys who have fallen into the mud off of the duck boards, and he's literally drowning in mud, and he's just like begging them to shoot him, and like none of them could bring themselves to fucking kill him. 
Like they all felt so bad for him, but like I'm not gonna shoot you, dude, in the head. Like he's just going crazy in the mud. Well, they tried to like you know make a little shimmy device out of rifles and yeah. all that, and it yeah. wouldn't work. But they couldn't bring himself to actually shoot him. Yeah, so they came back. So later he and just he suffered. <laughs> <laughs> the mud was so bad that horses drowned in it, and artillery pieces had to be moved by soldiers turning their wheels by hand, only to have the guns sink into the mud when they were fired. Often, artillery shells would land in the mud and sink without ever detonating. Entire tanks disappeared into the swamp. German concrete pillboxes would be hit by an artillery shockwave, tip over, and trap the men inside to suffocate in the mire. Even an entire goddamn steam locomotive delivering supplies to the front disappeared under the surface and was lost forever. I can't even imagine that level of mud. Like, it's just mud. It's a wet dirt sticks to everything, but it's so deep. You know, there's another story of these guys, as it rains, they're stacking ammo boxes. Like, they, they'll they put an ammo box on the mud and it'll sink mm-hmm. and put another. It ends up being like 16 ammo boxes deep where they could just stand on solid ground. Yeah. It's just so fucking crazy. I can't even imagine it. Like I said, just getting mud on your shoe is a fucking annoying and you, these guys are drowning in mud. It's incredible. It's insane to imagine. It's the difference in how most people know mud and how mud is at Flanders with, as we've mentioned, the water table being two feet below ground. Yeah. It's all mud down there. And so once the top part is mud, then it's mud until you hit fucking rock, basically. Yeah. And that's 10, 15, 20 feet below the surface. Enough to swallow a fucking train. (laughs) That's just insane, man. That's just fucking crazy. So you're right. I mean, we truly can't really imagine with surface thinking. Right. Like what they were going through. Right. How they survived this. Pure insanity. Yeah. Well, the Brits had suffered and things weren't looking great at Passchendaele. And even slow and methodical General Plumer had changed his tune and called for fast-moving, poorly supported attacks that failed. Luckily for them, in mid-October, the Canadians said, I'm sorry, what's all this shit about? And began to lead the charge. They advanced through the mud and muck, suffering heavy casualties, but they continued to move forward, taking 500 yards of territory at a time. By November 6th, the Canadians were in Poshendale, bayoneting the remaining Germans who hadn't retreated. Haig considered the Third Battle of Ypres to have been a victory. Sure, they hadn't captured the entire Belgian coast like he had planned, but hey, the British had finally regained the high ground they had forfeited in 1914, and had only lost 250,000 men. Lloyd Boy George <laughs> moved General Plumer to Italy, where he would prove effective, and replaced him with Sir Henry Rawlinson, who instantly told Haig there was no way the British could defend Poshendale against a massive German offensive. And one was coming. But that's a part of a larger story. And we're not done milking this war for episodes just yet. So. With that, end of story. Woo! We have told three-fourths of the story of the Battles of Ypres, but like Greg just said, the fourth battle, it's part of a bigger story. Maybe some heroes show up from across the sea and save the entire continent. I don't know. I don't know, know, baby. But that's the end of this part of the story, except for a little bit more. We got a little bit more just... Little oh? tiny things to tell you, just little bits. Huh? Things we like to call 
Fast facts. Oh. Fast fact number one. What veterans remembered most about the Ypres salient was the absolute stench of the battlefield. It was a combination of rotting humans, horses, mules, rats, as well as exploded shells, poison gas, body-dissolving quicklime, and the stink of human shit. You could literally smell Ypres from miles away. Fast fact number two. After he was fired as Lord of the Admiralty in 1915, Winston Churchill was made a major and placed in charge of a Scottish battalion that was sent to Ypres. He was loved as a leader because he took care of his men and personally led several raids into no man's land. Still, after only a few months, his political ambitions got the better of him, so he gave up his commission and returned to England to run for office. Fast fact number three. During the battle, the English developed several inventive waves, such as using sound waves and trigonometry, to determine where German artillery pieces were hiding on the battlefield. In the weeks leading up to the attack on Messine Ridge, the Brits printed over 600,000 artillery maps which allowed them to knock out over half of the German artillery pieces in that area. Fast Fact Number 4 On the day that Poshendale was taken, Haig's chief of staff went to see the battlefield for the first time. After taking one look at all the carnage, he burst into tears and said, Good God, did we really send men to fight in that? The officer, who had driven him there, and who had actually fought in the battle, replied, It's worse further on up. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you are excited to see us come back in a month. You're not just like, okay, well, they're gone for a month. I hope, like, every waking instant over the next month, you're like, where's 100 Proof History? What's happening? Where I, why aren't they comforting me with stories from history? We're out with stepdaddy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, boy. And we're out getting some cigarettes. Maybe we'll come back. Maybe we won't. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll be back. This is all we have in our lives. Anyway, check us out. 100proofhistory.com. There you will find episodes. You'll find a link to our Patreon, where for just $3 a month, you can subscribe. You can get older episodes, like a 100 things that regular humans can't hear. You get early access to our new episodes. And, you know, uh, you just make us feel good about ourselves. Make us feel like we're doing the right thing. Like, all, both of our fathers were wrong about us. And, uh, I'd really like to rub it in his face later this year. Well, Chris's father and all three of my fathers. Yes, yeah. His Mamma Mia situation he has going on. Outside of that, check us out at 100 Proof History, at 100 Proof History on social media, mostly on the Instagram. That's where we like to hang out, post the funnies. We'll be doing that over a month break. We'll be posting stuff related to old episodes, stuff like that. Gregory, I'm not even going to say goodbye for those lesser members of the show. I'm just going to say goodbye for myself. I am Christopher, your co-host, Gregory, the main host. What else? I guess I'm now obligated to say goodbye for our esteemed producer, Wolf Dick, (sighs) Dan Dan, the intro man, and uh, the ever-reclusive, somehow not when he's unwanted, Hambone. (laughs) We bid you adieu. I do have one piece of advice. My dad, who I've talked horribly about, did give me a very good piece of advice. He said, son, never pay for pornography 
All you have to do is look in the mirror if you want to see a pussy. All right. I love you guys. We'll see you in a month. Bye. Bye. Yeah, it's so wet there that Ben Shapiro's doctor wife, uh, she is concerned for its medical well-being. God damn it, you fucking idiot. <sighs> Greg sets it up, and I'm just like, and I fall over face first in the sand. <laughs> the ball lands on my swollen testicles. <laughs> Did we win, guys? Did we get it? <laughs> Man. It's a lot of pee. The body's amazing. Drink a can of Truly. Pee a can of Truly. <laughs> body's magical. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it really is. It means you're uh, perfectly hydrated. What, what's his name was right? My body is a wonderland. Oh, your uncle. John Mayer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sh- <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I'm I'm fucking kidding with you, and you're getting all fucking. Well, usually you get all angry about it. It's make fun of you. Yeah, it hurts. It stings in my heart. Good. (laughs) That's what I'm secretly going for. (laughs) I'll wear you down, make you feel bad about yourself, and then you'll let me fuck you. Destroy your self-esteem. You know, ordinarily I find you repulsive, but you know, today just something you got working. I'm like, oh really? It's so sweet of you to say. Can you milk me, Greg? <laughs> I've got nipples. Like the aliens could come through walls and take you. And so I was just terrified that they were coming to get me. And my dad's like, nobody wants you. I feel like such a mortal, I can only come on walls. <laughs> Nobody wants you, boy. Nobody's ever going to want you. Now milk daddy's nipples. Good God. Did we really send men to fight in that? The officer who had driven him there, and who had actually fought in the battle, replied with, It's worse further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's worse further on up. <laughs> that's, that's my hardened British accent. Yeah, he's seen some shit. He's seen some shit.